Let's just be friends. I just don't think about you that way. I just don't want to wreck what we have. I'm seeing someone right now. I'm not looking for a relationship. I'm not ready for this. It doesn't mean we can't be friends. It doesn't mean there's not something here. It doesn't mean that I don't love you. It doesn't mean Oh, we've all been there, haven't we? And can I just say that the scariest thing about it is that I think I've said every single one of these things to someone at some point. Haven't we all? Well, maybe not you. Oh, perfect you. Fine. You're so good at relationships. Oh, sorry. I shouldn't have said that. Don't go. Don't stay. Don't say it's me. It's not you. It has nothing to do with you. Maybe it was never meant to be. It's me. It's him. It's her. It's us. It's this place. It's like I've never known. Like I've never felt. Like I never thought. You would fall. Welcome to ReSound, where we reach out into the ether, listen to the great radio that's whizzing by on sound waves all over the world, reel in some of our favorites, and bring them to you Sundays at 5. I'm Gwen Maxi. On today's program, we have four stories. Out of the bedroom and into the chat room. What happens when the low-tech art of love meets the high-tech science of the internet? Larry and Zach, a tense, searing relationship revealed in just a nine-minute telephone conversation. Opera Mom, a son's walk with his mother down the only path not scorched by Alzheimer's, music. And waiting for love. Whew! The things we say to each other. So come, take a seat, take a break, take a listen. This is ReSound, curated by the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. Sex websites are everywhere. Our first story tonight, out of the bedroom and into the chat room, is a window into five different experiences of online relationships and sex. They're stories of internet daters looking for love in the digital age, a Chicago art student who tried to have internet sex with 500 men in one month, a sex researcher struggling to find out what the internet means for sex and society, an undercover cop surfing the web for sex criminals, and a Chicago internet entrepreneur selling a very personal sex toy out of his basement. Out of the Bedroom and Into the Chat Room was produced by Ann Hepperman and Kara Oler in 2003 for the Chicago Matter series here on Chicago Public Radio. A warning about its content. The subject matter is mature and may be inappropriate for younger listeners. Hello. As you can tell, I am not real. I am a computer-generated voice. My name is Crystal-United States English. I will be your host for this documentary called Out of the Bedroom and Into the Chat Room, Sex, and the Internet. It is part of Chicago Public Radio's special series, Speaking of Sex. For the next half hour, we will hear five different experiences with online sex. They are a window into my world. The internet. Welcome. I suppose what led me to internet dating was primarily curiosity. My name is Lucy. Actually, it's not, but I'll use that name for now. And um, I felt like I was seeing this trend among my friends and peers of, you know, it was the kind of thing that suddenly everybody was talking about at parties in the, you know, have you tried it kind of way. 
At the start, dating from the internet seems as simple as walking through the grocery store and seeing the perfect box of cereal. This is the one I'm looking for. This is it. This is gonna. This is gonna do it. Sexual needs fulfilled. Emotional needs check. My name is Sean. Uh, I moved here several years back with a girlfriend. Uh, she and I broke up recently. And uh, after dating somebody for six years, I didn't know how to go about meeting people. So I thought the internet might be something. I was doing this through Salon.com, and um, the format that it's in now is I am colon, and then I type in a woman, looking for colon, a man, interested in friendship, dating, serious relationship, play, age 29, location Chicago, Illinois, height 5 foot 3, weight 135 pounds, star sign Capricorn, relationship status, single. The questions they ask are so stupid. For example, the five items I can't live without, woolly slippers in winter, something to swim in, i.e. the lake, not the bikini, those blue bags for recycling, the cat box, Earl Grey tea. I tried to make my ad as funny as possible, or at least it's funny to me. For occupation, I put halitosis. For star sign, I put cover hog. My favorite on-screen sex scene was anything in General Hospital. The celebrity I resemble most, uh, Martin Amos, covered in bees. The celebrity that I resemble most, Matt Damon, which is actually true, but, you know, really I look more like Matt Damon from the side. I just wanted to find somebody who read it, laughed at it, and immediately responded. My first internet date was actually really fun, and the man that I met was so incredibly funny and seemed so normal and like somebody that I already knew. He was very visibly nervous, which was very charming to me, and chain-smoking, which was kind of repellent to me, but in a strangely charming way. But I think mostly because it was the first one, I had that sort of sense of, well, I can't meet someone good now. My first date turned out to be my encounter with a serial internet dater, because the first things out of her mouth were, you know, I don't mean to be disingenuous, but you're the second date that I've had this week, and I'm going to go on another date later tonight. And uh, I spent the next hour listening to her talk about her previous internet dates, carefully realizing that anything I told her about myself, she would repeat to the next person in sort of a uncommitted chain letter that she was forming. And uh, at the end of two hours' time, we put down our beer, we got up from the bar, we walked out, she gave me a big hug and said it was wonderful to meet you, and walked away. And that's when I entered the world of internet dating. <laughs> According to Net Nielsen ratings, nearly 17 million people visited online personal sites in April 2003. The number of successful dates arranged through the internet is still unknown. Some internet daters say it's difficult to recreate the chemistry they felt online when they meet people in real life. There's nothing more awkward than going two or three weeks exchanging messages with somebody and finding out they're a terrible kisser. There's nothing worse. You're just thinking, when will this stop? And they're thinking something completely different. <laughs> and just because you've emailed back and forth, you've just decided, based on the words you've traded, that, yeah, it'd be a really great idea to have sex. I never actually did have any 
hookup or really any other kinds of physical interactions with any of the people that I met this way. I didn't encounter anybody who I felt like was looking for sex. I was interested in a lot of wild sex at first. Somebody sent me pictures once, uh, emailed me nude photographs. Uh, when you disrobe before somebody, that's a very singular moment. When somebody sends you a picture of their crotch, that's, <laughs> that's the moment where you immediately look over your shoulder to see if anybody is standing behind you, something you wouldn't do in private, <laughs> normally. There's this weird myth that you are going to get it on and it's going to be white hot once you sign up. <laughs> and even if it's not white hot, there's going to be a lot more of it. So maybe that'll, that'll balance out. <laughs> the internet dating sites all have the instant messaging built into them, which is something that's very creepy and stupid to me. There were many times I was completely caught off guard, but, you know, I'd see the little thing blinking and I'd click on it and it would be somebody saying something disgusting and overtly sexual. And to me, that felt more sinister and unsettling than somebody coming onto you in a bar because that you kind of expect, you know, like drunk guys in bars just sort of do that. But you feel you ought to be safe sitting at your own computer. I decided to stop Internet dating when I realized I really didn't know the people I was getting to meet. I went at it with the tack of... Okay, I'm going to have it. I'm going to get it on. It's going to be great. I'm going to have a lot of sex. And I was really interested in meeting somebody, making a connection with somebody, falling in love again. And uh, the Internet just wasn't having it. I would say before the Internet, dating was hard and sex was easy. And after the Internet, dating's still hard and sex is still easy. Internet dating isn't always a disaster. Some people have found lasting relationships through the internet. Isaac Lung met his boyfriend online five years ago. They both lived in Hong Kong. But then, Isaac moved from China to the United States to attend the Art Institute of Chicago. The long distance led him to experiment with online sex. For his senior thesis, Isaac wanted to explore the idea of sex in a fluid-free environment. Warning. Isaac's story contains graphic descriptions of sexual activities. Some listeners may find the material offensive. Um, my name is Isaac Leung, and uh, I did a project called The Impossibility of Having Sex with 500 Men in a Month. I'm an oriental whore. The main reason I did the project was uh, I want to question whether the internet space is private or public and uh, if uh, cyber sex is virtual or real. So this is my room and um, what I usually do is pull my bed towards my table first and then I would log in online to all these programs which allow people to uh, meet each other by web camera. Hi, where are you from? Liverpool. This is a really funny experience because when you meet some people, like, you know, on the street or whatever, you usually see the person's face first and introduce yourself. But what you see online is usually you see the body first. You have a sexy chest. Thanks. I would use a fake identity online. I would say, you know, I'm 18 years old, slim, smooth, Asian boy. And then I would set up my web camera and I would start to, you know, chat with people. What are your stats? 18. Japanese. 
you never really trust people when they're chatting with you. They always tell you they have the longest of the world. <laughs> they always tell you they're handsome. When we get comfortable with each other, then I started to, you know, push a little bit more. So I would ask them to do something sort of crazy for me, you know. I would ask them to wear specific clothes and to use certain objects, sort of like asking them what they really want and explore the fantasy they have in their mind, but they never really try it in the real life. Isaac had the people he had sex with online fill out a questionnaire. He asked them about their age, their race, and their sexual preference. One thing, you know, I found really funny about the internet was more than half of the people are either bisexual or married, which is really amazing to me because before, you know, all these guys, maybe their whole life, they don't have the room to experience anything with male. Uh, here's the journal I write every day after I had sex with my webcam sex partners. October 28th, 2001. All about sex. All excited about sex. Can't really believe that I'm going to have sex with 500 men in a month. Can't believe that I'm going to masturbate every night for a project. October 30th. I masturbate with 34 people in two days. Isn't it amazing? I had sex with guys from 18 cities in two days, including 10 guys from Hong Kong. November 5th, 2001. I'm so tired since I've been non-stop masturbating for seven hours tonight. I hope I'm not being abnormal. Oh well, I guess I wouldn't do most of the things in the real life so far. November 10th, 2001. I had sex with an extremely ugly guy tonight. It was so nasty. I somehow start to question myself how I could get a hard-on with these people. November 23rd, 2001. So sick of my project. So sick physically and mentally. November 26th, 2001. Tomorrow will be the last day of my research. I always thought people shouldn't call internet a virtual space because I thought everything I had experienced on the internet was so real. But I guess I have to take that back now. So it's a complicated feeling of like, you kind of feeling it was, you know, real emotionally. And some of the people, they would say, oh, I'm going to get you a ticket and fly over and we are going to be lovers. And um, at the time, I really feel like, you know, I was involved. But next morning, like, you wake up and you just feel like you didn't get anything. Everybody is lying online. You can just so easily create your own persona, your own identity. You can be a girl, you can be a guy, you can be anything. My name is Mark Pleasant, and I pose as typically a young teenage female. Mark is an investigator with the Lake County, Illinois State's Attorney's Office. For the past three years, he's created fake internet profiles in order to catch sex offenders online. So far, Mark has made 50 arrests. I will cruise the internet, chat rooms, message boards, any place where people may congregate on the internet to talk with minors. 
it's not necessary to go into a chat room and advertise the fact that you're in there and that you're a 15-year-old girl. Quite often, you can just enter a chat room, not say a word, and others within the chat room or outside of the chat room may have the capability to check various profiles, and they may initiate conversation just based on what they've seen in your online profile. You let the suspect set the tone, and at some point, a meeting may occur. So then the meeting is arranged, and they show up, and they're what we would call taken down or arrested. They typically will try to uh, claim that the person that they were going to meet was much older than they really are. They may say, oh, she told me she was 18. I know that's not true because I'm the person that they've been talking to. I know they were told that I was well under the age of 17 by many years. Before the internet, I think some sex crimes were more difficult to prosecute because with the exception of child pornography, they always involved a live child victim. And it's very difficult putting a seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old on to testify about what happened to them that brings them to court on that day. After the internet, the indecent solicitation offenses are easier to prosecute because your witnesses in almost every case, a police officer. My name is Patricia Fix. I'm an assistant state's attorney in Lake County, Illinois, and I run the cybercrime unit here, and that involves prosecuting a variety of criminal offenses, including child pornography on the Internet, indecent solicitations, cyberstalking, and also a variety of financial crimes. In 1998, the Illinois Attorney General's Office created the Internet Child Exploitation Task Force. So far, they have arrested more than 300 online sex offenders. It's hard to tell if there's more sex offenders out there. Within the last five years with the explosion of the Internet, it's difficult to comprehend that society has swung so much in one direction, then all of a sudden there's this explosion of sex crime that didn't exist five years ago. The anonymity of the internet, or the perceived anonymity of the internet, puts people in a situation where they actually open their self up to potential prosecution a little bit more and potential law enforcement activities. Scientists do not know if the internet is creating sexual criminals. Since the invention of pornography, there have always been people who could not control their sexual urges. However, many sex researchers believe sex on the Internet can also be beneficial. Some couples use it to enhance their sex life. Others use it to try out new ideas. David Berg lives in Chicago. Because of the Internet, he was able to take his idea for a sex toy and turn it into a business. Uh, my name is David Berg, and I am owner and inventor of the Bone Clone, personal pleasure kit. Uh, the Bone Clone is a uh, kit that reproduces a man's penis up to nine inches uh, in 100% silicone rubber. Included in each kit are easy-to-follow instructions, skin tone matching colors, and with additional options available, the Bone Clone offers a unique sex toy for different tastes and desires. Je veux et je 
you know, I spoke a lot with friends. Just to get their response, I would say, hey, I have this great idea. And someone else would say, well, what is it? I was like, well, I figured out a way that I can create a sex toy that will enable someone to make a replica of themselves, a man, and leave behind for their spouse, partner, or whatever. And they can do it in the privacy of their own home. And I think it would be a great product because psychologically it, it, it is appealing to the woman because it's something familiar. And for the man, it kind of gets away of the fear of replacement. There are an estimated 2 million retail sites on the web. The United States Department of Commerce reports that in the last quarter of 2002, e-commerce rose by more than 30%. Retail sales on the internet equaled more than $14 billion. Right now, my virtual office and real office is uh, just in the corner in, in the, my house, in the living room, actually. And it, I think one of the nice things about setting up a business like this is the internet, as everyone pretty familiar with, allows people who have interesting ideas for starting up business to uh, enter the marketplace rather easily. There's not a lot of overhead and not a lot of startup costs. And I'm welcomed every day by that little tune. First, we'll go into the flash site. Welcome. That is just a voice that kind of welcomes a recipient. We have features, community, and frequently asked questions. And of course, there's the buy button, which is also met with a comment. Thank you. There's also an area if you want to listen to a little soundtrack, you can. There's three to choose from. Just to have a little fun. You know, keep it, uh, keep it grooving. For me, one of the most surprising things is the immediate contact you have with people through this order fulfillment process of people that you would never even see or talk to or even like strike up a dialogue. There was one email where the response was they wanted a shorter tube to deal with the man's uh, own feelings of inadequacy. But I think the great thing about the internet with discreteness is the fact that someone can easily go in a corner of the room where their computer is with complete privacy and buy something that interests them, but they would be a little apprehensive to go to a store and do. According to Net Nielsen ratings, nearly 29 million people visited adult websites in April 2003. 73% were male, 27% were female. Experts believe that the revenue potential of adult websites will continue to grow. Hey, right now we're going down to the basement. Some people start things in the garage. We started in the basement. Pretty typical basement. A lot of different stuff, tools, and clone kits. Every day I come down here and I'm like bagging these vibrators with templates and filling material and I just think to myself, what am I doing? But you know what? It's very liberating because for the first time I feel as though from nothing I've created something. I, you know, I, I look at it in the days when, you know, I was going uh, through the first stages of like liking girls and everything and, and sex before the internet was, you know, how do I get images or whatever that satisfies being a young boy growing up and, you know, obviously a bunch of guys get together, they pass around their material. But after the internet and also growing older, you realize that it's much more um, attainable. Everyone can get it. And it also seems to change what those offerings are. 
because what you see on the internet reflects so many different types of desires. Maybe it's our acceptable red light district, so to speak. Dave has made about $10,000 selling the bone clone kits. He usually sends out 5 to 10 a week, but has sold as many as 20 in a day. The prominence of adult websites raises questions about how sex on the internet will affect society, but discussions on what kind of role sex plays in our lives is not new. In 1948, the Kinsey Institute for Research in Sex, Gender, and Reproduction released a report on the sexual practices of 18,000 Americans. It brought issues previously kept behind closed doors into the open. Sixty years later, the Internet has generated a whole new set of questions for scientists. Dr. Jensen is a sex researcher at the Kinsey Institute. I asked him why researchers find me, the Internet, so interesting. Well, first of all, everybody likes you, and also very mysterious, with a lot of questions that we have about you. Uh, you're fascinating, you're there for many, many people, and uh, a lot of people use you and abuse you and pay to use and abuse you, but you have no inherent values. Uh, you're very neutral and you're welcoming everyone, and um, you're, you're a pretty fascinating creature. Thanks, Dr. Jansen. It seems the Kinsey Institute has been at the center of controversy since Dr. Kinsey released his report, The Sexual Behavior in the Human Male, in 1948. Why do people find the topic of sex so controversial? Um, it is something that uh, we as sex researchers have learned to live with. Um, people have attitudes and opinions about sexuality, and uh, Many people believe that it belongs in the privacy of their homes, and we would very much agree with that. But it's also the case that there are so many things in the world that are related to sexuality that are causing problems and that need to be studied that we don't really understand much about. But because it is such a sensitive topic to most people, there's a lot of opposition. I've heard you say I'm one of the most democratic technological developments ever invented. Why would people be afraid of so much freedom? Well, you are very difficult to control, that's one thing, that's for sure. And they don't know where you are either, that's another thing that scares many people. Uh, you're, you're here and there and you're everywhere. So I don't think necessarily that you are very controversial, but at the same time you're so new to us. You're like a stranger who walked into the room and took control of the conversation and we're trying to grapple with you, that's for sure. This next question may be an unorthodox one, but I'll go ahead and ask it. Do you have any questions for me? How much time do you have? One of them definitely would be, could you help us study you? Maybe we should develop a little informed consent sheet for you. I don't know if you, if you could sign it, but if you could participate in our own research, both as a subject as well as a researcher, that would be wonderful. And For one, you could try and help us keep track of who's doing what with you and where and how and for how long. and. Uh, or whether they enjoy it or not. I'll look into it. Maybe someday I can be more helpful to you and your colleagues. For now I am afraid we only have time for one last question. What is it like to be a sex researcher during the age of the Internet? I love this. We are only getting into this area and starting to ask ourselves what are the more interesting or more important questions. How does it impact people's lives? What, what are the good things about it? What are the bad things about it? 
So you throw this into a society and you say, okay, well, what are people going to do with this? Because we've never been able to do that before, to more or less say, okay, we distribute porn magazines to every household and let's see what happens. Thank you for talking with me, Dr. Jansen. Dr. Jansen is a sex researcher with the Kinsey Institute. He spoke to me from his office at the Institute located in Bloomington, Indiana. It's been a pleasure being your host for this evening's documentary, Out of the Bedroom and Into the Chat Room, Sex and the Internet. You're listening to ReSound, curated by the Third Coast Festival on Chicago Public Radio. Coming up, a conversation between father and son, two lives revealed in nine minutes, and what Alzheimer's could not destroy in one woman, her love of music. Stay with us. Matt Glazer is a musician and a teacher and a son. His mother has Alzheimer's. She doesn't remember a lot, but there's one thing she cannot forget. Matt's story is called Opera Mom. How's your singing voice today, Mom? I'm going to try it a little. You're going to try to and, sing a little and bit? And see what will We'll see. I don't know. You don't know. So, do you know. Do you know what day it is today? Oh, here we go. <laughs> Do you, do you know what month it is? Do you, I'm afraid I don't. You don't know? It's okay. No. Do you know where you are? Who knows? <laughs> My mom's name is Jeanette Taubin. Yes, yes. When she was younger, she was a professional opera singer. Yeah. Um, she studied at the Manus School of Music, yeah. and she won awards. She won the yeah. Arthur Godfrey Talent Show on television, yeah, right, and her right. stage name was Jeanette Bard. B-A-R-D. B-A-R-D, that's right. So maybe I'll, I'll put on some of this for you to listen right, to with headphones. Is that okay? Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay. Oh, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, a bit louder. Louder? Yeah. So a couple of years ago, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and then she had a stroke. She's here now at the Jewish Home and Hospital in Manhattan. (laughs) One day, we went to watch television. It turns out La Traviata was on television. No, it was... um, Don Giovanni, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. and that's where she was able to sing along with it, and from the beginning to the end of the whole opera, right, and like she would right. say, 
now, da 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 da, and then the orchestra will go da 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 da. So clearly, the entire opera was there in her brain, a- yeah. immediately able to access it. Beautiful voices. That's good, Mom. Yeah, let it. I mean, the main thing that I'm interested in is how she has difficulty speaking and difficulty communicating in basic kinds of ways and difficulty doing daily tasks and remembering basic things. And yet at the same time, the entire score to probably 20 operas is there in her brain and she can access it immediately and sing it and immediately feel all the feelings and that's a lot of information to be storing this complete score to 20 different operas. Like cl- it's close to that. Yes. Matt. Matt, that's right. And then my sister is your daughter. What's yeah. her name? Um, I'm Matt. Matt. That's me. I know. But my sister is named Cla- Claudia. Claudia, that's right. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in music, and I was interested in the role that music was playing in my mom's life at the end here, where everything else was degenerating. And I thought it would be interesting to find out a scientific explanation for some of these things. So I went to see a friend of mine who's a neurologist. But ultimately, I felt that that was really going down the wrong track. In some conversations I had with my sister, Claudia, she looked at it from a more psychological standpoint. And and I thought that that was probably more fruitful. The most moving experience I've had with mom is that she has a picture of her mother, of our grandmother, who we never met. She abandoned mom when mom was five years old. She has a picture of her on her, her, her little desk in the hospital. And mom pointed to that picture, and I said, Mom, who is that woman? And mom looked at me, and she said, oh, it's terrible. Mm. She's, and I, so I handed her the picture, and she clutched the picture wow. like, to her chest, wow. and she started to cry. Mm. And I said, that's one wound, I guess, that you never get over. And well, she was really sobbing. She said, I've never felt it like this before. I see that what's happening to my mom is it's not really about music. Music is just one component, it's a reflection of something that's going on with her, which is that it used to be, you know, she was a knowledgeable music teacher and she could hold forth about librettos and information about these operas. And similarly, she had all these opinions about life and the world. All of that's gone now. She's just like a blank slate, very, very childlike. Oh, she was never that lighthearted. She was never much of an emoter of anything except for music. She was a person who got irritable quite easily and could start yelling quickly but so there's some benevolent quality to this right. she's completely transported right. her face just becomes radiant yeah, and everything changes oh it's really beautiful to watch you know she she'll be sort of leaning in the chair and then she'll hear music and she she puts her hands on the side of the chair Uh-oh. and sits up and says oh wait listen here here this part <laughs> that's a monster 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 from the yeah. marriage of figaro right Excuse me. 
Hello? Yes, ma'am, sorry. Do you have a record you have a a recording of Don Giovanni? Uh, we don't have one, unfortunately. I, I hope to bring one. Would you, would you like that music too? Oh God, yes. You do? You bet. <laughs> something, I think it was in the Tao Te Ching, it said something like, in the search for knowledge, every day something is added. But in the, if you're trying to approach the Tao, every day something is removed. <laughs> and that's what Alzheimer's is doing to my mom, that she used to have all this stuff, all this information, ideas, opinions, um, a world, an edifice of knowledge that she had built up over a lifetime. And the Alzheimer's, brick by brick, is removing all of that knowledge but something essential is left. You just have this existential experience of music in the present moment, and that's something Alzheimer's has given to my mother. I wouldn't wish Alzheimer's on anybody. It's a terrible thing to watch somebody go through that. But I hope that I could have that without the illness of Alzheimer's, just that direct, visceral, utterly present experience of music. <laughs> That was great, Mom. That was, was. beautiful. That was that beautiful. Was the best I heard. Yeah, <laughs> Ma, you did great. Oh boy! I, I, I enjoyed. I, I, here, lift up your arm so I can lift okay. your arm up. Thank you. Okay. Opera Mom was produced by Dean Olsher for PRI's The Next Big Thing from WNYC in New York. You can hear The Next Big Thing on Chicago Public Radio Saturdays at 2. Let's listen to some of the music we just heard in Opera Mom. This is from Verdi's La Traviata.
Amo from Verdi's La Traviata. You're listening to ReSound on Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. Those familiar with Joe Frank's work know that he is absolutely masterful at, how do I put it, searing into the emotional life of his characters with laser-like precision. This next story is called Larry and Zack. In case there's any confusion, it is fiction, but you'd never know it. It's a conversation between father and son. Sounds innocuous enough, right? Guess again. I hate this nature stuff. How can you hate nature stuff? Nature stuff, that's what's out there in the world. Trees and and water. We're living in this beautiful city, much more beautiful physically than New York, with surrounded by mountains and water. I mean, it, it, you have, it's an incredible place, and you don't seem to care about them. You see one bug, and then and all of nature sucks. I mean, it makes it a general statement. I think you always just get them infuriated whenever I make a simple because point. I think you're robbing yourself of, of experience. What am I going to retain from nature? I'm not going to retain anything. Nature is just, it's just an aspect of life. It's just something that's there. It's, it's like the part which this like whole, you know, this big media super beast hasn't dominated yet because there's no big buildings there yet. That's, that's all. It's like another city, and it's like pre, you know, billion people, population, whatever the hell, you know. Wait a minute. You're saying that nature is just like a development and cities waiting to happen? Yeah. It's, it's just like a vacant lot, you mean? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like it's just sitting there wasting away as nature until it becomes cities and streets and buildings and, and Microsoft? I'm not saying it's a good thing, but I'm saying that's what's happening. But you have no interest in it, you're saying, as just nature itself. You don't learn anything from it. It doesn't teach you anything. It doesn't yeah, it you teaches you stuff. It teaches you stuff about history. It teaches you what it teaches us. You know, I mean, nature, of course, you know, provides oxygen, you know, because, you know, you have, you know, trees there. But there are some aspects of nature which people don't find as amusing as you would. I understand that. But I'm just saying that when you're in a place that is beautiful and has mountains... I think that one of the great things about being alive is just looking at things and experiencing them, walking through woods, breathing the air, just seeing the, the, the world of nature. And it's true, if I propose that we do that, it's because I think that you're missing out on a very uh, important experience. And you're telling me that you really hate it. You really hate nature. And, and, and I don't hate nature. I just don't find it as amusing. It's like, you know what it is? It's like you and like art. See, Whenever I mean, I know you're just gonna deny it or or just yell at me like you always do. But you know, whenever we're you know even even you know in like I don't know Washington or something like that or wherever we are, you always want to go to some stupid art exhibit and nobody else wants to go, but you want to go. What is with this art stuff and, and nature and just these these inanimate things that you just stare at and you're, and you're over you're just so overwhelmed by them that you find it amusing, but I don't. Mom sees me downloading MP3s on an occasion, and then she says, Zach, what is your life? Your life is all about downloading MP3s or whatever. What is with you and Mom and these, like, general statements and, like, thinking you know it all for just because seeing one thing about me? You interpret everything so incorrectly and in such a horrible manner. I just just don't understand why you you can't... it's It's like everything aggravates you so easily, you know? Zach, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing with your life? Stop. Calm down. Calm down. Like, I remember one time I had this kind of idea that maybe it would be funny if someone got beaten to death with a jackhammer. All right? That is what I said. This is like, hey, Dad, wouldn't it be funny if someone got beaten to death with a jackhammer? And he, and he, and he, and he got so, like, horribly offended. He went, what is funny about that? There's nothing funny about that, Zach. Everything I say, you take so seriously. You don't 
understand the aspect of just, you know, meaningless chit-chat. You don't understand the concept of that. You take everything so seriously. It's like you have a sense of humor that it's only when, like, you make up the joke or whatever. You you don't understand when other people are joking. You have to to lighten up a little. You make a noise. You go, and you go away, and you walk, and you start walking ahead of me. But only very infrequently do I. No, you do it all the time. You did it twice within yeah, the hour I, I arrived in Seattle. No, wait, wait, wait. If you're talking about yesterday when we got out to this uh, uh, ground. No, I am not talking about the freaking hike. I'm talking about within the ten minutes which I arrived in Seattle. And you told uh, me that this guy had your bong and wouldn't give it back to you. Why do you feel as though? Alcohol is like the wonder serum or something. What makes you think that this is like the thing that's gonna like, like make your own ideas of how, of how your life should be led seem, you know, more uh, cohesive, you know, with your, the situation you're in? I don't understand that. That's not why I drink, Zach. I, I drink because it, uh, it just takes the edge off uh, my thought process of, of, you know, of being too aware of what's the, of my pain in the world. I find drinking quiets down the, my mind in, in a sense, and I'm not so aware of the, you know, the things that I have to deal with, my age, my, you know, uh, lack of success to a certain extent. When I'm drinking, I don't care about that so much, you know? I tend to focus in increasingly more on my own, my own writing, you know, and I celebrate myself, you know, as, as Walt Whitman said. And that's what I find about uh, alcohol that I like. I just think it's weird how when you get drunk or if you've been drinking excessively, it's just weird how it's like, it's almost like you think you're the most like, you know, you're like the messiah. You think you like, you have like, you're, like, like what you're saying is so important and so brilliant. And nobody, everyone's too nice to tell you that you're sounding like an idiot. The alcohol makes you a volatile person. It makes you really cantankerous, you know, it's hard to deal with you. I don't like that. I think it's ridiculous. I think alcohol is, is, is ridiculous. Well, I'm only saying, Zach, that it's nice to know things about the Hutus and the Tutsis. It's not like you no, have to No, no, you said it. it's nice to know things about what's going on in the world, and I know what's going on in the world. I, I just never heard of the, these crazy African tribes that, that hack each other up with machetes. I didn't know about these people. Well, I understand, and there's no reason that you had to know about them, but then just because I use them in a poem doesn't mean it's gibberish. Just because You're saying because you never heard of them, and I thought they were valid to use in a poem, that it's a sign of being drunk. That's not but fair. you were drunk. I was not drunk. You drunk half a bottle of scotch. But no, I didn't drink half a bottle. Yes, you did. So, you know, I was downtown anyway, and I figured, well, that's the end of that. I'll come back home, but I might as well swing by the liquor store and pick up you know, my, my booze. I hadn't had any booze in a couple of days. So I'll pick up my booze for the evening. And I picked up a bottle of, bottle of vodka. For 10 bucks, I could get a fifth of Gordon's. But again, I bought it because, well, I need, I was out of, out of alcohol. And, and uh, usually after the show, I like to have a drink. But as I was buying the Gordon's, I, I can't deny that there was a part of me that thought, what if I bought the Gordon's and just took it home and started drinking it? which is something I don't do. I don't go home uh, at one o'clock in the afternoon and start drinking. I have done that, but certainly not on the day of a show. I, uh, in case you've forgotten, I'm a professional actor and I have a job tonight to do a small 
part in this play, but I would never drink on the day of a show, almost never. So I bought the Gordons and I came back home and, and I realized that I was in a terrific state of sadness at this, you know, about, I felt guilty, I felt uh, empathy, I felt helpless. So I got home with the, with the vodka, I put it in the freezer and that's, you know, this is all a long-winded way of telling you why I want to talk to you, is because I suddenly realized that I was going to drink the vodka, which was a very difficult thing to come to. I do not drink, and certainly haven't in my time here in Seattle. I do not open a bottle in the middle of the afternoon. But I did, and I decided to just take a chance and see what, uh, what and I'm not drunk yet, <laughs> And but I did have a few drinks, and it's not, I'm not sure that it's the, even the drinks that prompted me to, to want to share this with you, but it, uh, but I wrote a little poem, can I read it to you? <laughs> who could have known, who would have guessed that this was the day I turned drunk? Nobody, I think, nobody at all. And yet it should come as no surprise. It was an accident waiting to happen. God, that's trite. It was a brain waiting to be cooked down to sweetbreads. Better. A mind too fragile to hold up the soul in its keeping. Yes, bad father. It is a deal with the devil I've always been ready to make. But the grace of devils is rare as the grace of angels. And the darkness of despair and self-loathing is not quite quite the darkness of death. The poem's okay, right? Mm. And it's scary, you know, because I... And I don't want to have to do that. But that's how the drunks do it, don't they? Uh, I'm sorry. Larry and Zach, produced by Joe Frank. If any of us strung together all the cliches we've said during passionate discussions and then were forced to listen to our own words coming back at us, would we be fascinated or just humiliated? Ashamed or possibly entertained? A little of each? Well, you don't have to wait much longer to find out. Our next story is called Waiting for Love by Canadian sound artist Nicholas Longstaff. Let's just be friends. I just don't think about you that way. I just don't want to wreck what we have. I'm seeing someone right now. I'm not looking for a relationship. I'm not ready for this. It doesn't mean we can't be friends. It doesn't mean there's not something here. It doesn't mean that I don't love you. It doesn't mean that I'm in love with you. I don't love her anymore. I don't love him anymore. But But it's it's too too soon. soon. It's It's too too late. late. It's It's not the right time. There's lots of time. What time is it? I'm not ready. You're not ready. We're not ready. Ready or... Not. You're like a brother. Like a friend. I know you too well. I hardly know you. I can't leave him. I can't leave her. I can't just leave. I should leave. I should go. You should go. Don't leave. Don't go. Don't stay. Don't say it's me. It's not you. It has nothing to do with you. Maybe Maybe it was was never never meant to be. It's me. It's him. It's It's her. It's It's us. It's this place. It's like I've never known. Like I've never felt. Like I never thought. You would fall.
evolve? And where would we go from here? Where did this come from? Where is this going? Where would you when... What about me? What about what I want? What was wrong with the way things were? Why can't you leave this alone? Why did you have to bring this up? I never asked for this. I never wanted this. It's not about me. This isn't what you need. This isn't what you want. This isn't what I planned. This never should have happened. How long has this been going on? Whatever happened to honesty? Whatever happened to truth? Whatever happened here is not my fault. It's me. It's not you. It's you. It's not like I never told you. It's It's not like you didn't know. I just had no idea you... So what do you want? What should I do? Where should we go? What did you expect? What is this we? Will you call me? I'll call you. Call me. I won't be home. I'm busy. I'll be out. Wanna go when I come? I just need to be alone. I just need some time. I need to talk. How have you been? How are you? Are you okay? What's going on? Wanna meet? I can't right now. 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 Now? No. When? Then? Yes. I need your friendship. I want your love. I want you to need me. I need you. You are so important to me. We get along so well. If only things were different. If only things could be the same as they were. You see? I thought you knew that when... I never said I loved you. I just meant for you to love me as a person. I'd rather be hated by the person I love. I wish you could understand. What do you want from me? Sex? You want to f*** me? You want to cheapen this? You want to make me feel like I just feel uncomfortable when we touch. Unless I'm touching you. Hug me, but don't hold me. Just look in my eyes. Do you see where I stand? Do you know what I mean? Do you hear what I'm saying? Are we on the same wavelength? Holy f***! Just tell me you're not mad. Just tell me you're not too disappointed. Just tell me we can still be friends. Just tell me what's on your mind. Tell me the truth. The leave of the true bits. Maybe someday. Maybe one day. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe last year. Wait. The The thing thing is, I I love you. you. I I just don't love you. Waiting for love. By the way, that's waiting dot 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 for love. Produced by Nicholas Longstaff for Deep Wireless. Deep Wireless is an annual month-long celebration of radio art in Toronto. Each year they issue a call for entries on a different theme. In 2003, the theme was Radio Without Boundaries. What is your culture? After the 2003 celebration, Deep Wireless released a CD featuring some of the talented radio and sound artists across Canada. That's where we found the piece you just heard, Waiting for Love. If you liked Waiting for Love or didn't, please let us know. In fact, we'd love to hear any of your comments about ReSound. It's a new show. Tell us what you think of it. Get in on the ground floor and be heard. Send your thoughts our way at ReSound at chicagopublicradio.org. And now, before we leave you, we're going to play a little music, something we don't think you get to hear anywhere else on the public airwaves. This is the band Pulse Programming, a local Chicago band, and the album is called Tulsa for One Second. That wraps it up for today's show. Thanks for lending us your ears and your brain. 
and everything in between. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. The program is produced by myself, Gwen Maxi, and Kadia Dunn, and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Thanks to Eric Rudd for engineering help. You can hear today's program at chicagopublicradio.org slash resound. And while you're at it, you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world at thirdcoastfestival.org. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Sarah Lee Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. ReSound returns next Sunday at 5 with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else. Unless you live everywhere else. Good night.